The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. Today is the final message on this very important topic of spiritual warfare. Started this a couple of weeks ago. It's coming out of 1 Timothy 1. We're looking at the end of that chapter, the last three verses of 1 Timothy 1. And we've been talking about how uh, the warfare that we're in is real. It's going on right now. It's going on everywhere. And that it's very, 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 very important. So I hope, my hope and my prayer is that you would take this very seriously yourself. I fear that some will just hear this and say, okay, well, yeah, okay, I know I believe that, yeah, blah, blah, but it doesn't really affect me. I hope that you don't have that attitude. Nor do I want you to get so engrossed in this that you see a demon in every corner. But a more balanced biblical approach for you to be equipped and prepared for the storms of life. And that's my hope and my prayer and my motive. Timothy was the lead pastor of the church in Ephesus. Paul started the church in Ephesus with some other leaders, and then he appointed Timothy as the pastor there. And so when we read last week in the book of Ephesians about the armor of God, we're reading a letter that was written to Timothy's church. So in 1 Timothy, Paul says to him that there's a war going on and you need to be ready for it. And then in Ephesians, when he writes a letter to Timothy's church, he tells him about the armor of God and the whole church there because they were under attack. They were under attack. The church is under attack. Our church is, and it has been as long as I've been here. It never, ever stops. So Paul is teaching Timothy and his church at Ephesus about spiritual warfare. So let's go back there again this morning. And finish up with the armor of God. I'll start in verse 10. Ephesians 6, 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which with you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, 
that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to. Four times we are told here in this short passage to stand. Stand against, to withstand, stand firm, stand therefore. And it's interesting to me what is lacking in this message about warfare. There's nothing here that says we should fight. Isn't that interesting? There's, you'd think if you were talking about the armor of God and warfare, there would be something about fighting, about combat, how to fight, how to attack. There's absolutely nothing here that talks about that. And you may say, well, what about the sword of the spirit? The sword is a, an offensive weapon and you can use it to attack. Well, it's not how it's listed here. It's listed here as a defensive weapon. We defend ourselves with the word of God. We protect our minds with the word of God. The sword and the word are the same. Remember, verse 17, take on the helm of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So you might say, well, what about evangelism? Evangelism, we're going out and attacking the enemy, right? We're, we're presenting the gospel to people, stealing those souls away from the devil. Yes, that's true, but our focus is never on the devil. It's always on the people. So evangelism is about presenting the gospel to people, not so much as defeating the devil, although it does do that. So our focus is never the devil. Our focus is always people. In Matthew chapter 16 and 18, we have a wonderful promise from Jesus. He's talking to Peter, and he says, Peter, uh, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we know that the devil's not going to defeat the church. The church wins. That's the great news. We've already won. We are victorious. When Christ comes back, he'll come back for a triumphant church without spot or wrinkle. And so the church wins. The devil loses. It's all the little battles in between that we're referring to, that we're talking about. That's our confidence. Our encouragement is that we win Ultimately, we prevail. But in the meantime, the devil is trying to defeat the church. And that would include you because you are in the church. He is trying at least. You've heard the phrase, there's nothing for sure in this life but death and taxes. Well, you can add to that one more, and that is that the devil is attacking the church. He always is attacking the church. How does he do that? The short answer is, any way he can. Any way he can, he will find a way to attack you and me. So, it will help us to see how he came against Timothy's church. So let's look at that. What did he, how did he attack Timothy? And perhaps then we can protect ourselves by looking at how he attacked Timothy. Paul said this, charge certain persons, I believe this is verse 3, not to teach any different doctrines. So Timothy, your job is to confront people 
who are teaching a false doctrine. People who are teaching lies. And what you got to understand about the church in Ephesus, this is the very beginning of the formation of the church. There has never, ever, ever before in the history of the world been a church in Ephesus. It's the only church there. There's just one. And that's not the case today. But there's one church. It's an early formation stage. And so the devil's attacking it to defeat that church. And what he's using is interesting, is not an outside force. It's always an inside. So Pharisees and Sadducees are being converted to Christianity. They're coming into the church. They're mingling now with Gentiles who are Romans and Greeks. And all of a sudden, this, this doctrine comes up that you must be circumcised to be saved. Or many other various um, heresies. We don't know specifically what the heresy was attacking Ephesus, but they were teaching false doctrine for the purpose to cause division. That's the whole point of it. That's the whole point of the devil's attack on you. To cause division between you and your spouse, you and your children. The attack is to cause division here in the church between us, Ultimately, between Christian and Christian, that is how the devil comes against us. And that's what he was doing in Ephesus to defy the church. And because of their diversity, they were literally sitting there as easy prey. Now, if I told you that the devil was intent on causing Christian to come against Christian... Would he succeed at something like that? Almost makes you laugh, right? I mean, it's a resounding yes. And why do we say that? Because we've seen it so much. It's always out there. There's just so much of it. Christian against Christian. Maybe one of the reasons why it's so easy for the devil to attack us is because we're sinful. We're sinful people. We sin against each other. We do things in the flesh, and it becomes the perfect opportunity to attack and to use those offenses, those sins, as a point of entrance. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, another church that he founded, 2 Corinthians he wrote this to them because they were experiencing this very same thing. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, I'll read it quickly. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us from walking according to the flesh. So they are accusing him of doing the ministry in the flesh. Whatever you want to define that as could be a million things. Verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. One of the most consistent attacks that you'll see on the church is that the leadership is working in the flesh. The leadership's in the flesh. They're, they're doing things wrong. They're doing things poorly. They're, they're, they're whatever. There's a, there's a thousand different ways you could define work in the flesh. And so let's just take a look at this just for a couple minutes. I've, I've seen this so, 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 so much that it's important to me to share this with you at this time. A couple of reasons here why this is so common. One, I think I said it earlier, church leaders are flawed and they do operate in the flesh from time to time, but that doesn't mean that everything they do is in the flesh. We don't give leaders sometimes enough opportunity to grow and to become that leader that they need to be. They're not that leader when they begin, and so we hammer them. I don't want to go too far on that one because Jesus gave us Matthew 18, which perfectly spelled out exactly what you're supposed to do when a leader is failing. When a leader is in sin, when they're operating in the flesh, go to Matthew 18. It'll lay out for you perfectly what to do. The problem is not what to do. The problem is that people don't. Follow it. And another reason, I think, is because Christians don't know how to heal. There's no sorrow. There's no forgiveness, no repentance, no opportunity to restore trust. It's one and done. It's a one-way relationship. It's what have you done for me lately? Not with everyone, I'd say. Not every person is like that. But some are, and so they love you, they love you, you're wonderful, you're the greatest pastor I've ever had, until I say something that hurts you or offends you. And then it's like, oh, he's the worst pastor ever. And it may not be a huge group of people that respond like this. It may just be one person at a time. It's like the enemy just picking off people one at a time, when they're vulnerable, when they're hurting, come in and, Pastor John doesn't like you. That's why he didn't say hi to you the other day in the cafe. He doesn't like you. He thinks you're a terrible Christian. He thinks you're a jerk. He doesn't want anything to do with you. He doesn't want to worship with you anymore. He wishes you would not go to the group anymore. And see how these lies, the father of lies, begins to talk to us and use our weaknesses and our examples. And so we must learn how to walk in the armor of God to protect ourselves from these things, these flaming arrows that are shot at us. When someone is hurt and offended and they leave the church, that hurt just spreads. It goes with them onto their family, onto their children, 
goes with them to the next church. It just goes on and on and on. It's not how God has designed the church. But we don't want to do the messy work of staying put and working it out. We just gone at the first uncomfortable thing that hits us. So what do we do? How do we change this? How do we overcome this? He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. So what we must do is sort out the truth from the lie. The enemy comes in. When you have conflict at home, when you have a disagreement and you're working that out, the first thing you got to do is you got to sort out which is true and which is not. Because in every conflict, there are non-truths at work. So you have to separate that out. Where is the truth and where is the lie? And this gets messy. It gets ugly. I think that the relationships within the church are extremely complicated. Very complicated with many, many different layers and components to them. It's, remember in uh, the movie Christmas Vacation? And uh, Chevy Chase goes and he grabs the lights out of the garage, and it's this giant ball of Christmas lights. And most people would look at that and just go, throw that thing away. (laughs) Take you 60 hours to undo that. And that's kind of how our relationships are here. They all overlap and intertwine, and there's so many, they're all connected and related to this and that and this and that. And so any attack on the church goes far and wide. It just hurts the church further. Relationships are complicated. Lies are put out there. Our emotions are high. But listen to me. Listen to me. We have the power to overcome this. We have the power to not let this defeat us. Start with Matthew 18. Follow that principle. Go to the person. Talk to them. Find out what's going on. Take a stand against division. If you see somebody uh, complaining or saying disparaging marks about another person in the church, don't let that happen. Go confront that. Talk to them. Say, hey, don't do that. That isn't right. That isn't how we're taught to be Christians. We go to each other one-on-one. We don't go to our friends and tell over the whole world. So we must take a stand against it. Listen to this in 1 Timothy 4. This is so profound. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Do you see that? Our problems, our dysfunctions, our failures are the devil's opportunities. And boy, does he love to use them. Boy, does he love to use them. People say to me all the time, they say, well, where is so-and-so? They they used to worship with us and now they're gone. Well, we had a conversation one day. 
talked about some things that needed to change, got hurt, offended, and left. There's person after person after person after person. You might say, well, that's because you're just a terrible leader. <laughs> well, <laughs> that may be the truth. <laughs> but our conflicts become the devil's opportunities when we are nursing a hurt and not dealing with it. And if that happens, we're in danger. You're in danger. I could do a whole series on division, but of course we don't have time for that today. Another way that the devil attacks the church is through complacency. And I think this is not a danger in some parts of the world, and, but here in America, especially dangerous, is complacency on the church. Go back and look at verses 3 and 4 again. Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. So myths and endless genealogies promote speculation, but not action. You know what the church is really good at? Preparation. Tons and tons and tons of preparation with no action. I don't think that's necessarily us or you, but I see this a lot. It's endless talk never promotes spiritual growth, right? If you're going to more than one Bible study, you better be growing a whole lot, okay? I mean, just leaps and bound growth in your life if you're going to more than one Bible study. Don't confuse Bible talk with spiritual growth. You know why I can say that? Because nobody studied the Bible more intently than the Pharisees, and they killed Jesus. They would study it night and day. That's all they did was study the scriptures. And look what it did for them. I'm not saying don't study the Bible, right? <laughs> I'm just saying that can't be all we do. That can't be all we do. That can't be all what we're about. We can never lose sight of the fact that we're here on this earth as a church to be a light to this community. You know something that the Lord showed me this, this past week, a couple weeks, two weeks ago? Was it, I was at Fred Meyer, and uh, I saw this mother and daughter together, and... Um, the daughter and the mother, both of them were not, let me say, they are not the premier of our culture, okay? It's a nice way of saying that our culture probably would look at them and reject them because of the way they looked, the way they acted, so on and so forth. Society says, you, no good. And this gal looked at me and she smiled at me, but I didn't smile back. I just looked at her. I didn't give a frown or anything, but I just looked at her and I went on my way shopping. And right then, just dropped in my heart, if you reject them, the devil would be happy to have them. If we won't love them, the devil will be lining up to receive them. Is that what we want? We got to see through the exterior. We got to see the value of people. Paul says to confront people with love, 
with pure motives and a clear conscience. Be sincere. If you don't have a clear conscience, then you have no business being in ministry. Now, I'm not saying be perfect, right? Of course not, right? We're all sinners. But if your conscience isn't clear, there's something bothering you there about something in your life. Hey, it would be better for you to sit that one out and work it out rather than just to continue on. Pastors who continue to lead week after week, month after month with guilt and shame will eventually fall. Just not a wise thing to do. And Paul says, don't do it. Those who minister with a guilty conscience will fall into the devil's traps. Now, he said to us that we are to defend, never attack. We defend ourselves. We defend our families. We defend the disadvantaged. We defend the lost, the weak, the poor. Those that need to be defended, that's who we defend but we are never on the attack against the devil and his demons. Get that out of your mind. Here is why, some reasons why. The devil and the demons are not physical. They're not physical beings. They're spirit beings, and so you can't hurt them. Forget the idea of you taking a sword of the spirit and cutting their arm off or stabbing the devil in the stomach or some kind of notion like that. That doesn't happen. Okay, they may, they may not even look anything like a human being. Who knows what they look like? We don't know what they look like. The closest thing we know to what they might look like is an angel of light. The devil can appear as an angel of light. He and his demons can. But other than that, we have no idea what they look like. And so let me ask you this. How do you defeat an enemy you can't see? cannot. You cannot. If you can't see him, how can you defeat him? You can't kill him. He's eternal. These are everlasting beings. We don't know what they look like. We know they don't attach themselves to objects. I don't know where that came from, but somehow that's a common belief that demons will attach themselves to objects. There is nothing in the Bible that substantiates that. And so they're invisible. Well, that puts us at a disadvantage, doesn't it? If you can't see your enemy, you don't know how to defend yourself. It's a big disadvantage to us. So therefore, for these reasons, I believe the Lord says, don't do it. You can stand against an evil force. If you don't see it, you can still stand against it. You can still defend yourself at all times. You can still be prepared. You can do all those things well, except going on the attack. Because this is how the world is, and we have the physical world, and we have the eternal world, invisible world, you don't know who's in front of you or who's behind you. You have no idea. And in a sense, we feel like we're sitting ducks. And Jesus kind of compared us to that. He kind of said that. He compared us to sheep. Now, you know that game that you play where you associate your personality with an animal, right? Well, they have like a tiger and a lion, and then like one of them's like a squirrel or, you know, it's like, 
don't know, they're, they're different animals. Sheep is not one that you would really pick for yourself, okay? I, I, that, that's not that great of a comparison, but that's the one that Jesus uses. In Matthew 10, he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, stop right there. That doesn't make any sense at all, right? That doesn't make any sense. What happens when sheep hang with wolves? Sheep die. Every time. Every time. Sheep don't have sharp teeth. Sheep don't have claws. They don't have horns. They have no defensive capabilities whatsoever. They're completely helpless. And so Christ says here, I'm sending you out helpless. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. You're going to face opposition because that's how I have set it up. But take heart. We've got armor. We've got the armor of God that can protect us. Now, we must rely on Jesus. We must be in Jesus. We must walk with Jesus. We live our lives in Christ. And so if all of that is true, then what can be done to the devil and his demons? I'm taking these strictly from Scripture, and I'll list them for you here quickly. Demons can be withstood. We know that is true. James 4, 7. Uh, devil and demons can be tortured by God. Luke 8, 28. They can lose what they possess, Mark 9, 25 and 26. They can be sent to another place, Matthew 8, 32. They can removed, be removed to the abyss, Luke 8, 31. And ultimately, they will be, all of them, sent to the lake of fire forever for all eternity, Revelation 21 and 8. So that is it. That is it. So you look at that list and you go, okay, what is our God-given authority? We have authority in one area, and that is to resist, to stand against. Amen. Resist the devil. Stand against him. Be ready. Be aware. Walk in the armor of God every day and pray. Develop these things in your life so that when you face, and did you catch this, your evil day, Paul said, when that evil day comes, you will be able to stand. Now, I don't know if that evil day is one day or if that is multiple days. It doesn't matter. Really, it doesn't matter. You need to be prepared no matter what. I pray that it's not frequent. But if and when you face intense hardship... The armor is the thing that will protect you and your family. It's the belt of truth. Nothing is more critical in an argument or a disagreement than the truth. Without it, I don't see how we can wade through the barrage of the devil's lies. You can't without the truth. You must be in the truth in his word. 
breastplate of righteousness. Remember, our righteousness doesn't come from ourselves. It comes in Christ. We have his righteousness that protects us. That's our hope. It's in Jesus. And we know Jesus through obedience. It's not enough to just believe. Some people say, well, you know, if, if, I went, if I died and went to heaven and God said to me, why should I let you into my kingdom? I would say, well, I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And then he would say back to you, well, the demons believe that as well and they shudder. Well, the next thing you can say is, Jesus, hi, this is John. I know you. I know you, and you know me. We've been walking together for a long time. And Jesus would say to the Father, Yes, Father, I know him. He's one of mine. And in you go. How do you know Christ? You walk in obedience to him. You walk in obedience daily, and then you know who he is. God forbid that there would come a day when he says that he doesn't know you. Shield of faith. It's more than just a belief. It's how you live. And then we must be prepared with the gospel of peace. It's critical to keep that perspective, right? It reminds us that we are not... This is not our world. This isn't where we live. We are aliens here. I guess, in a sense, we're all illegal aliens. We're refugees. We are. Because this is not our home. And the devil certainly doesn't want us here either. And so we need to keep that fresh in our mind. This is our perspective. And then the helmet of salvation, when tragedy or evil strikes, the first thing I think often what happens is people lose their faith. I've seen so many people do this. It's like uh, Paul refers to it as their faith is shipwrecked. It's a way of saying that they lost their faith. It, you know, there was so much tragedy and, and hardship and difficulty that they said to themselves, there can't be a God up there who would allow all of this, and so I don't believe. And the first thing they lose is their faith. And so you've got to keep that helmet of salvation secure in your salvation, knowing that you have faith in God, that he loves you and he died for you, but he also has the ability to keep you and save you and keep you. Listen to me, please listen to this. If you're not walking closely with Christ right now, what makes you think you're going to walk closely with him when the storm hits? And God forbid that in the middle of a storm, right when you need him most, you're far away. God, in his mercy, he comes to us when we call him. But I'll tell you, it's far better to walk through the valley with him. Amen. When you're in Jesus' boat, it doesn't matter what kind of storm you got going. You're okay. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and Jesus showed us the importance of the word when he defended himself against the devil's lies in Matthew 4. You can look that up sometime. 
And the only truth that defeats the devil is the word of God. If it is used, it works every single time. You know, this is such serious stuff. (laughs) It's serious stuff, and we need to learn how to apply this to our lives. Our future depends on it. In this world, you will have trouble. Trouble's coming. It's coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? Have you trained yourself to walk in these things each day? We got to stop giving the devil all these little victories. We got to start standing up and standing against him and refusing to let him destroy everything on our lives. Don't let him take your teenagers. Don't let him take your kids away from you. Don't let him destroy your marriage. Don't let him ruin your career. Don't let him take your life. Stand against him. Resist him. Rise up in Christ. And stand victoriously. Stand strong. I always comfort myself with this. I am not afraid of the devil or his demons or anything that they might be able to do to me because I'm walking with Jesus. And when you're holding his hand, there ain't nothing that can hurt you. I don't care. Would it be cancer or poverty or homelessness, whatever? You got your hand holding on to Jesus' hand. You're going to be just fine. If I'm going to suffer, because life throws suffering at us, if I'm going to suffer, then I sure would rather suffer hand in hand with Jesus than cursing him. I'm not going to curse the help that I need. I'm going to love him. So let's stand against the enemy. Let's not let him defeat our church anymore. Let's walk with Jesus hand in hand, and we will have Nothing to lose but that which the Lord doesn't want us to have anyway. So let's pray together. Father, I pray for my friends here whom I love. I pray that nobody would leave here confused or hurt or thrown off. Instead, Lord, they would leave encouraged, equipped, empowered. Empowered to love and to bless, to encourage. Lord, we take our stand today against the enemy, the adversary, all of his lies and all of his schemes and all of his traps and all of his little things he throws at us, Lord. We are standing against him today and we ask you, God, to remove him from our presence and push him away and prevent him from doing any of his evil to us or to your church or to your people. Lord, protect us and our children, our families, our lives. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.